One of the common objections against Christianity is that it doesn't face up to just how bad things are. It isn't realistic about how evil things can be in the world. Now, sadly, that is true about a lot of what I call folk religion Christianity. A lot that passes for Christianity, and we have to ask if it's got into us, is what I'd call folk religion Christianity. With its chirpy tunes about breezing through life with Jesus, it's just not very real about how hard life can be and how bad things are. But that accusation isn't true of the Bible, which faces up painfully to how bad things can be and how evil the world is. And Judges 19 to 21 is a stark example of that. Let's turn back to it now. Judges 19 to 21. Now, here we have a story that's not very well known, not surprising, it's so unpleasant. It's not very well known, so I'm going to retell the story instead of presuming that you're familiar with it. And I'm going to do that one chapter at a time, stopping for lessons as we go along. And then ending with the one main lesson. Remember, if you were here last week, you heard that chapters 17 to 21 are the conclusion of Judges. And so they are holding up a mirror to Israel and saying, look what you're like. And as we hear it, we have to ask ourselves, are we in the mirror? We had chapter 17 and 18 last week, and that was trying to cover a lot, and now we're trying to cover chapters 19 to 21. Obviously, there is a lot here I will have to miss out. So when you spot that I've just completely skated over some things, well, of course, I'm going to have to. You can ask me about them afterwards. Let's begin with chapter 19 and call it, How Can God's People Sink So Low? And we start with a Levite and his concubine. Now that's a combination that shouldn't go together because a concubine was a secondary wife who was purchased like a servant. And so right away we're told there's something wrong with the religious leadership of Israel. We saw last week the story centred around a Levite who was totally wrong. This time, right from the start, here's a Levite with a concubine. A religious leader who's purchased a secondary servant wife. Something's wrong. Well, it goes even more wrong because the Levite's concubine is unfaithful to him, goes back to her father, and the Levite chases after her. And all seems happy when he arrives at her father's house. And the father welcomes him and is so hospitable, and it's rather humorous to start with, isn't it? The way that he just can't get away as his father just wants him to stay, again, his father-in-law, again and again, and day after day they feast, until eventually he says, right, I must go this time. But it's getting late. We read the day's nearly over. And like the music in a film, it gives us that sense, something's up here. It gives us an uneasy feeling, what's ahead? Off goes Mr. Levite with his concubine and uh, the servant suggests that they stay in uh, the town of, I think it's Jebus, I said Jebus. Anyway, it's a town of foreigners. He doesn't want to stay with foreigners. Who knows what foreigners might do to them? Instead, let's get to safety, to an Israelite town. Here's one, it's called Gibeah and it's full of Benjamites. They're our people. But it doesn't seem that friendly because they sit in the town square 
And the people are going past, going home from their workplaces, and no one's inviting them in. They sit on the steps or on their luggage, and not a single invitation. This is a breach of Middle Eastern hospitality. Something's up here. Well, eventually an old man comes in from work, sees them and says, come to my house. You're welcome here. And whatever you do, don't stay in the town square for the night. Well, they're just settling down to enjoy the dinner he's provided when there's a hammering on the door. Bring your visitor out. We want to know him. He's my guest, says the old man. Don't do this disgraceful thing. Have my daughter and her concubine instead but they won't accept the offer. Let's just pause briefly there. What other Bible episode is this sounding like? Genesis, Genesis, Sodom. It's It's exactly like Sodom, isn't it? It is clearly giving a message because the parallels are so many, even down to the details. This is like Sodom. As the conclusion of Judges holds the mirror up to the Israelites and says, look what you're like, it's saying... You've become like Sodom. That's the message here. Look, Israel, you've become like Sodom. Well, as you know, it gets even worse. But the Levite sleeps peacefully in bed while his concubine is outside in the hands of the mob all night. He's just sleeping peacefully in bed. What is, what is this man like? Does he have no heart? And in the morning, he gets up, steps out of the door, there's his concubine lying on the ground, and with this pathetic touch, her hands are on the doorstep. And he just steps past and says, get up, let's go. Is she dead? Well, we don't actually know yet. You might presume she's dead, but we don't know yet. She doesn't reply, but she hasn't said a single word in the whole story. Did you notice that? Even when they're considering what town to go to, it's the servant and the Levite talking. The concubine utters not a single word. The feminists are very interested in this chapter. Now, I hope you're not a feminist, because feminism is wrong, but they are right that here is a message about the mistreatment of women. She's silent. Not a word from her at any point. Is she dead here? We don't know. But he doesn't talk to her, not properly. She's just a bit of meat to him. And he even carves her up like meat and sends her off in the post. He's supposed to be a man of God, a representative of God. It's sickening, isn't it? And we are supposed to be sickened by it. We are supposed to find this chapter hard to stomach. How could God's people sink so low? Well, let's stop in the story now to try to answer that question. How could God's people sink so low? Judges has a very clear conclusion in chapters 17 to 21, but it has a very clear introduction in chapters 1 and 2. Its structure is very clear. It's got this great bulk of the main message in the middle with its cycles of judges and sin and deliverance. And each side it's got conclusion at the end, introduction at the middle. Now... Can you remember back to what the introduction was about? That's a bit hard to ask you that, so I'll tell you. Chapters 1 and 2, the introduction, were about the Israelites just settled in the promised land and failing to drive out the Canaanites. That's what it was about. They settled and they failed to drive out the Canaanites. 
God had commanded them, drive out the people of this land, don't intermix with them. But the Israelites' attitude was, well, that seems rather harsh, doesn't it? And it's hard work too. And we've done most of it. And they had done most of it. Don't be fussy. Come on, don't be fussy. Give us some slack. We've done most of it. It's a rather harsh commandment anyway, isn't it? And so they don't carefully follow what God has said. They intermix with the idolaters. And to use the language of this morning, instead of being a holy nation, they become conformed to the world. They start to act like the people around them. They do not what God says in a precise way. They do it partially because they want to really do what seems right to them. We saw last week that the conclusion of Judges has a motto. Do you remember what the motto was for the conclusion of Judges? They did what was right in their own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when you hear that, you might think, well, that won't be too bad. If people do what's right in their own eyes, they might get it a bit wrong. But it won't be too bad, will it? And chapter 19 is to tell you, you've underestimated the sinful heart. Look how bad it can get when people do what's right in their own eyes. And just in case anyone hadn't got the message, did you notice what was dropped into verse 24? Chapter 19, verse 24. You won't have this in most of the English translations, but literally it is this. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine, says the old man. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever is right in your eyes. As if saying, if you haven't got the message yet, I'm going to punch it between your eyes. When people do what's right in their own eyes, it can end up being this. Now, how could such a sickening chapter apply to us? Well, there are many people in churches who know that the Bible says, flee sexual immorality. They know the Bible says, make a covenant with your eyes not to look on a woman to lust after. But it can't be that important, can it? They say. And if you don't watch programmes with that in, well, there's hardly anything left to watch, is there? So you must be being too strict, really. And so they do what is right in their eyes. And the world sets the standard. And if you know about the world standard, if the world sets your standard, it's going to be a shifting one, and it's only going to shift one way. And so it drags them down. Until they are looking at things they would never originally have dreamt they'd end up looking at. Haven't so many people experienced that? Beware, Judges 19 looks a million miles away from Judges 1 and 2, where it looks like just a minor failure. But there's a very sure path from Judges 1 and 2 to Judges 19. Don't get on that path. By saying, don't be fussy, don't be a legalist, that sin doesn't matter too much. Now, I've applied it there personally, and I hope you'll take that personal application if you need that. But it can also happen for churches as well. 
It's not just personal. Remember, Judges tells us the problem started with, or the problems with the religious leaders were the issue here. They had no king and the Levites had gone wrong. (coughs) Well, back in the 19th century, church leaders in the UK and Germany and other places were cutting bits out of the Bible. Not with a pair of scissors, but in their sermons and in their books. We don't agree with this bit. We don't like that bit. And bit by bit, parts of the Bible were effectively cut out. A famous preacher called Charles Spurgeon warned, it's wrong and it's dangerous and it will lead you the wrong way. And they effectively said to him, you fussy, old-fashioned hardliner. That might have been all right 200 years ago to believe that, but not today. But this, doing what was right in their own eyes, instead of sticking with all of God's word, led them where they would never have dreamt. It has led to churches today that say it's all right for a man to marry a man. The people in Spurgeons, they never would have dreamt where they were leading, but they have led there. That's one of the messages of Judges. If you find at Hollywell we are sidelining any parts of the Bible or pushing any parts aside because they're inconvenient, you must call that out because it is a dangerous path that can look all right to start with but it leads where you could never imagine. We must guard against it. Let's get back to the story and move into chapter 20. (coughs) Chapter 20, is this how to react to sin? Bits of concubine in the post horrify Israel. And when they hear what happened, although we must admit it's the Levites, very economical with the truth version of what happened, they unite to deal with the wicked men of Gibeah. We must deal with these wicked men. But they hit a problem. The problem is the Benjamites won't cooperate. Gibeah is one of their towns and they won't hand over the sinners. Instead, they stand by these men. These men are our brothers and we're going to stand with them. So at God's direction, Israel goes to war against Benjamin. And now you get something very strange. If you read chapter 20, you might have thought in this conclusion, God was nowhere here because he isn't mentioned, but then he is when we get into chapter 20 because God directed them to go to war and yet God caused them to be defeated. The Israelites are directed by God to fight against Benjamin and they are defeated on the first day and they're defeated on the second day and they have 40,000 of their own men killed. What's going on? Well, we're not told. It's all very strange. And they weep at the house of God and they fast and they humble themselves and they seek the Lord again and he says, go and this time I will give you the victory. And they go and they are given the victory. But they don't just defeat Benjamin's army and they don't just execute the wicked men of Gibeah, they go on the rampage and they destroy everything in Benjamin. They burn down every town. They destroy every man, woman and child. They even destroy all the animals. There's chapter 20. Is this the way to react to sin? Let's stop and get a lesson from it. Is this the way to react to sin? Basically, yes. Basically, yes, it is the way to react to sin. 
we've seen the problem started in Israel by not putting sinners out of the community. That's where the problem started back in chapters 1 and 2. They didn't put sinners out of the community. God's people were supposed to put sinners out. In the Old Testament, sinners were to be put out of the nation, in some cases by executing them. God said to do it. In the New Testament, sinners are to be put out of the church. Acts chapter 5. For the first time they see that there are some hypocrites in the church called Ananias and Sapphira and they are put out, very drastically so. In the New Testament we're told to put the unrepentant out of the church. And in chapter 20 Israel is doing what they should have done, putting out the sinner so the community may be a holy nation. But there are a few buts. Okay, I said basically yes, and it is yes, but there are a few buts to this. Let me give you a few buts. They are right to put the sinners out, but so often when we do this, it gets rejected by people. Notice how the Benjamites uh, react to this, what I'm going to call attempted church discipline, because it is. Israel was the Old Testament church. This is attempted church discipline. How did the Benjamites react? Do you remember? Oh, the men of Gibeah are our brothers. We're sticking with them. No, you can't have them. You can't do anything to them. They're our brothers. We're sticking with them. Have you heard of Jonathan Edwards? He was one of the greatest leaders in American church history. He's a man who experienced revival... He even, uh, some non-Christians say he's one of the greatest minds America has produced. But his ministry never recovered from a church discipline case. It was called the bad book incident. There were 20-somethings in his church who got hold of a midwifery book. That doesn't sound a problem, does it? But they were putting it to obscene use. And Edward said, we must take action and we must discipline those who are leading others astray. And whatever you might think of that, the church agreed. There was a problem happening here and some people were promoting obscenity. People within the church. We must discipline those who are leading others astray. And the church agreed, yes, we must. Until, can you guess what? until they found out it was their own children or their own nephews or their own nieces. And then there was uproar and support for Edwards evaporated. Most people in Bible churches agree the Bible teaches church discipline until it's someone close to them or someone very respected in the church. Whoa, 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 you better not do that. That's what's going on here. They were, based, they were right, weren't they, what the Israelites did? But there's just a warning, be aware. People you might think would go along with it, agree with it in principle, you find often don't in practice. Shouldn't stop us doing it. They were right, putting out the sinner is right, here's another but, but it doesn't mean it's always done rightly. Israel was right to fight Benjamin, weren't they? But then it it seems, if you read chapter 20, this crazy bloodlust gets hold of them, as can happen to armies. Armies are good things and dangerous things, aren't they? This bloodlust gets hold of them, and they go on the rampage, and they just wipe out everyone. It was the right thing, but it wasn't done rightly. 
And, and sadly, that can happen in church discipline. Churches, it's right to put hypocrites and the unrepentant out of the church, but it's easy for it to become a harsh personal vendetta, proving ourselves against someone who's become the enemy. And it becomes done wrongly and with wrong attitudes, and we really have to watch out for that. Here's another but. They were right to deal with Gibeah, but it would have been far better if they could have united to deal with sin a lot earlier. One of the really sad things about Judges is, this is basically the first time you read about Israel uniting, and it emphasises they united as one man. Why do we have to wait to chapter 20? And to fight the Benjamites. Couldn't they have united to fight the Canaanites? Couldn't they have united to tear down the idol altars? Now there's a a very important lesson there. Much better to be a church where we're all willing to give and to take encouragement and correction where we're helping each other to turn from sin and we recognise we need each other to do that and we better listen when people point out our blind spots. Much better to be that than to be a church that turns a blind eye to sin until it can no longer be tolerated and it becomes a church discipline case. There's a lesson. Here's one last but. They were right, but they needed to take a good look at themselves too. Why did God tell Israel, fight Benjamin, and then let them get slaughtered? What I mean is the Israelites get slaughtered. Why did he say, go and fight Benjamin, and then they got defeated and 40,000 killed? Well, we don't quite know, but I think the best answer is likely to be this. Because the discipline was right, but it must not be done self-righteously. They had to be made humbly repentant. They had to recognise the sin in Gibeah was not absent from them. And so God was reducing them to a humble repentance. That's what you find in chapter 20. They go out and fight and they sound pretty confident. And they're defeated until they are made to mourn their own state. And so... It's the same when we have to deal with sin in the church. An obvious New Testament equivalent is Matthew 7, verse 5. Take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It doesn't say don't take the speck out, but it says deal with your own plank first. Let's have the last chapter of the story. Chapter 21. And I'll give this the heading, is this a good or a bad ending? (coughs) Chapter 21, is this a good or a bad ending? Now, the war has reduced the tribe of Benjamin to 600 men who are camped out on a rock trying to keep safe and no women. And the Israelites have taken an oath, we will not give our daughters to be wives to the Benjamites. It looks like the tribe of Benjamin will die out. And this devastates the Israelites. They mourn over this. You might find that odd. They take action and kill them and they mourn over them. But actually, that's exactly the right combination. Taking action against sin with a loving heart that doesn't enjoy it is sad over it. 
And so they sit at the house of God and they cry. But although they're at the house of the Lord, they don't ask the Lord what to do. Instead, they hatch a plan. And the plan goes like this. Who didn't go to fight Benjamin? Oh, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Right, we'll go to fight them. And they go and they kill all the men of Jabesh-Gilead and take the women, and that supplies wives for the Benjamites. But it's only 400 wives. That's 200 short. What are they to do? Again, they don't ask the Lord. They hatch another plan. And the plan goes like this. There's a festival coming up at Shiloh. And it involves dancing girls. And they send a message to the Benjamites. Hide in the vineyards. And when the dancing girls come past, grab them and take them and they can be your wives. And when their fathers complain about this, we'll keep them quiet Because we'll say to them, don't fret, you haven't broken your oath because you didn't give your daughter. Your daughter was taken from you. And then I'm sure they'll be really happy, won't they? That will all be fine. And that is how the book of Judges ends. What a strange ending. Is it a good or a bad ending? Well, let's stop for some lessons. Is it a good or a bad ending? I hope it's obvious it's a bad ending. I hope that's obvious to you. It's a bad ending. The Israelites were right to be concerned about keeping their word, but they've got themselves into a mess and they make it worse. They slaughtered their brothers in Benjamin and they tried to sort it out by slaughtering their brothers in Jabesh Gilead. They make a really foolish vow and they stick to it in a foolish way. The whole episode starts with the abuse of one woman in chapter 19 and it ends with the abuse of 600 women in chapter 21. And make no mistake, it is about the abuse of women in chapter 21. It's a really bad ending. But we should have been expecting that, shouldn't we? Because it's the conclusion of Judges. And Judges is a book that says, see what it's like when you do what's right in your own eyes. And it's saying to us, if you carry on doing what's right in your own eyes, there isn't a good ending. There's only a bad ending ahead for you. Anyone here still doing what's right in your own eyes? However right it looks to you, if it's not right in God's eyes, there is no good ending for you. I've called this one of the most disturbing episodes in the Bible, but it's only one of the most, because the most disturbing thing in the Bible is what Jesus says about the eternal ending for you if you carry on doing what's right in your own eyes. You must turn from it to Christ. However young or old you are, you must. It's a bad ending here, but it is good, because it's not the ending. That's the caveat. It's a bad ending, but it's good because it's not the end. How amazing there is more about Israel after the judges. Isn't that amazing? That Israel isn't finished. There's more after judges. There's Ruth, what a lovely book. There's 1 and 2 Samuel. There's, oh, there's all this great history. Even down to today, there's still, there's still Jewish people today, aren't there? That is an amazing evidence of God, actually. This foolish, chaotic, sinful people, Israel, don't destroy themselves and don't die out. No thanks to them, 
but thanks to God. Because he promised he'd keep them. And because he is so gracious. And so it's a good ending, actually, because it says, what a saviour. You can rely on him. Is there any encouragement in this book of Judges? Any encouragement in these dreadful chapters? Yes, there is a little. It's this. What a saviour. You can rely on him, even in the pits of Judges 19 to 21. He keeps his word and he is gracious. The actual ending, of course, is verse 25. Would you just have a look at that? Because that's the actual ending. 21 verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. We must end with Judges ending. And there it is. Now, a little story to get us to that. <coughs> I was once a waiter at a wedding. Uh, some friends of Louise asked me and her to, to help out at their wedding. They only kn- knew her and not me. And they didn't realise how clumsy I was. And I remember I was walking around with a tray of wine glasses, empty wine glasses. And I got to behind the minister, who I, I knew quite well as a very respectable, slightly intimidating character. And he was talking to a couple next to him. And there I was with my tray of wine glasses when one of them fell off. And I went to catch it. And as I leant forward to catch it, all these wine glasses just cascaded off. And you know how sometimes you see things in slow motion, but you can't do anything about them? There was this cascade of wine glasses just smashing on the floor behind this minister and this respectable-looking couple. And he just turned around. I can picture him now. He just turned around and looked and said to them, let's get away from this fiasco. Well... We are supposed, chapters 19 to 21 are supposed to make us say, let's get away from this fiasco. It's a fiasco, these chapters, isn't it? It's chaos, it's confusion, it's bad leading to worse, and it's to get us saying, let's get away from this fiasco to the king we need. That's the point of verse 25. Let's get away from this fiasco to the king we need from God. These chapters are to drive out of us the desire to do our own thing. These chapters are to drive out of us what we've inherited from Adam and Eve, right from the time they did what was right in their eyes and looked at the fruit and said, we don't need God. These chapters are to drive out of us the self-confidence we can make up right and wrong, and it won't be too bad. But these chapters are not just to drive out, they're also to drive us to that to drive us to welcome the rule of Jesus. They're they're to drive us to say, we will have this man to rule over us. We must have this man who is God to rule over us. These chapters are to drive us to recognise we need his rule. And not just in theoretical ways. We need his rule through our fellow Christians encouraging and correcting us. We need his rule through the under-shepherds he gives to his church, flawed though they are. We need his rule through obeying everything he's commanded us. We need his rule especially to do what the judges couldn't do and to change our sinful hearts. Has judges driven you there? Are you someone who's welcoming his rule? Let's pray for that now.